Kumaravati with a welcoming committee at the entrance. <laughs> Having a traffic survey done because we have to, our temple project is, we have to go to the appeal and uh, we want to know just what are the traffic problems here. They wanted to do a survey in three days on a Sunday, which is usually the one of the busiest days. And so this Sunday, they chose, this Sunday was not particularly busy. <laughs> then they'll, they'll do it on a, on a weekday and on Friday, on a Friday. To get some some uh, idea of the traffic patterns. Traffic, you can see, is a problem now, and everywhere. It's the it's the one of the modern life's great uh, uh, conveniences, but also it's kind of uh, working against. Also, in the cities, you can see in London how how difficult it is uh, to move, or if you've ever been to Bangkok, you'd, you'd realize the ultimate. <laughs> Bangkok has the worst traffic problems I've ever seen. <laughs> when I went to Rome, I, I w was invited to the Thai embassy in Rome, and they complained about the Rome traffic, and the, and the uh, ambassador said, well, at least it moves. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Bangkok, you can get stuck for hours. <laughs> so the days subject is uh, on meditation <coughs> and the word itself is is a kind of generic term for kind of some kind of mental activity uh, and can mean all kinds of different things uh, to some people it's it's a kind of prayer or mantra or it can be contemplative, uh, reflective, or concentrative. It's a word that this means something to do with the mind, training of the mind. And this is, uh, I think, the the um, the emphasis uh, that the Buddha, uh, that the reason why the Buddha's teachings are so appreciated now, say after 2,500 years, is because of his emphasis on the, on the mind. The Buddha talked about the mind. And this uh, 
is something that we all realize is uh, that maybe we have to do something about our minds. Uh, in the Western world, we feel we've, we've done we put so much emphasis on the external environment, on developing a, uh, an economy and a political political institutions, social structures, uh, material development, all to you know to where they our energies have taken place by creating, manifesting the external world, changing it to suit our own kind of ideals of what we would like. And to the point now that, that we, we've uh, been so busy, uh, so caught up into this, that it's turning against us, isn't it? It's, it's now a kind of backing up or a backlash of of environmental problems, pollution. And the mind still has, may, may, has not been developed. We've developed it to a certain degree, okay, in the ability to, to think rationally, logically, uh, developing uh, empirical science to where we can uh, produce and change and transmute and create all kinds of things uh, through just our own cleverness, our ability to, to manipulate the elements around us. So that kind of mental training, we've, we've certainly been very, very successful with that kind of mental development. People feel that that is the most important too in many ways. Uh, and modern education is based on the idea that you train your intellect, you, you acquire knowledge, and you, you, you learn to think in a certain way, learn ways of thinking uh, that you can, say, uh, become a computer programmer or, a, or an engineer or some kind of scientist, psychologist, psychiatrist, and on and on like this. <coughs> So modern education is about acquiring knowledge and training the mind to to think in in symbols and images uh, in, in in the logic that is necessary to achieve success in various fields. But meditation is about training the mind in a different way. Instead of acquiring knowledge or getting information about things, or memorizing, or instilling into a mind all the kind of uh, information that's available, which is enormous now, isn't it? The amount of information that's available to the average human being is, is more than any, any human being can stand. We've uh, just got, we've tried, tried to, to remember all the things that that all the information that come to us in just the daily life of an ordinary person. So the meditation is to train the mind towards a discerning ability to, to know the difference between the real from the illusory, to be able to, to say, free the mind from its, from its endless habits that, uh, that it's acquired to be receptive in its pure state of knowing, 
And in that pure state of knowing, seeing, listening, reflecting, intuiting, then, then there's a kind of revelation or insight that takes place. That the ultimate truth, the real, the, the truth is, is revealed through the mind. Not a, it's not acquired knowledge anymore. It's not something you, you get out of a book or learn from somebody else. It's not made up. It's not verbal, it's not words. It's uh, what we call insight. Insight realization or insight understanding. So this kind of, of knowledge and wisdom is, is universal. It's not cultural. It's not personal. It doesn't belong to, to any, any group or any religion or any uh, class or race or, or nation. It's available, it's always here and now, and it's uh, open to, to anyone who is willing to, say, put forth the effort or take an interest to free their minds from just the being caught up in the endless proliferations and attachments and habitual tendencies. So it's a different attitude. When we start meditating, we find it very difficult, usually, even though it's extraordinarily simple. People love to get their get information they can sink their teeth into, memorizing things and and learning all about Buddhism. And and sometimes we want to learn the history and the Pali and Sanskrit, and we want to learn. Uh, you know, read all the, the scriptures. Then we've got the Theravada, well, that's, that's a lot. And then there's Mahayana, an enormous amount of literature and things to learn. And so we can become Buddhists in the sense that we, we learn all about Buddhism, per se, but not realize the truth. Because sometimes we approach Buddhism as if it were just like, you know, geometry or history of England. It's just some more stuff we learn, adding to the already the, maybe the overdose we have. So in, in one thing that attracted me to, uh, when, when I went to see Lung Po Cha uh, years ago in Thailand, and, and uh, so I didn't know what to expect. What would a Thai Ajahn, a Thai forest master, what would you know, he'd probably have a whole, you know, as I was afraid he'd have a whole kind of uh, new system that I'd have to learn, or I'd have to, uh, you know, learn some more things that acquire more information. But his main approach was uh, put your books away and just calm down. <laughs> Which didn't seem like very much in a way, but in, a, in another way it was a relief because uh, nobody had ever said that. You know, everybody's saying you should, you know, you should go on to get a PhD. Or you should, uh, or even in, in the way we, we Westerners bring our, our kind of uh, attitudes and in, in views into, into something like Buddha Dhamma, we, we tend to make it into a big problem for ourselves. Meditation becomes something extremely complicated. 
Not because it really is, but because we create it into something complicated. Because our minds are conditioned to be that way. We have complicated minds. Now, after teaching meditation for the past 26 years or so, I realize I have a fairly simple mind compared to some of these guys around here. I used to think I was complicated, but I'm, I've changed my mind. <laughs> because some people's minds are very complicated, and uh, and this is uh, and and that complication, of course, uh, in some ways can ser have certain advantages. But much of the time, one gets one is so convinced, so kind of caught up into it. That uh, and reacting to it, that it, we tend to just get more and more confused. And the approach of, of the Buddha was, was uh, say, in Buddhist meditation, was very, very simple. For example, his teaching, uh, his essential teaching, the Four Noble Truths, is a very simple teaching. It's not easy in the sense that, I mean, it's easy to memorize, doesn't take very long to to memorize four noble truths, but to actually have insight into those truths, to use that that paradigm or that structure for reflection contemplation means that one has to give up all one's preconceptions and, and one has to just more or less trust and relax and attend to the present moment. We lean to say, look, observe, listen, pay attention to the moment, to the body in the present moment, to the breath that, that, that's going on right now, the breathing of the body, the feeling of the body, the, the general mood of the mind. Now, the, the, the conditioned mind finds that very frustrating, and we get caught into endless doubts about it, because we... We say, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting here, and we, you know, and we would, we should be doing something. You know, really getting somewhere. Especially if we're, you know, we're, we're well-educated people who, who uh, think we, that we have great abilities to learn and understand things on a, prof in a profound way, and uh, the the willingness to just be and and sit there and be with. The frustration of the mind, the 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 preconceptions, the the whole uh, confusion that may arise, willingness to accept that as co in conscious experience, and not just try to suppress it, or feel that you're doing something wrong by having it, resisting it, or trying to to figure it out and and analyze it, is how we te we tend to react. And so, as, as we began to, say, develop our meditation practice, more and more we tend, we realize there's not a lot we can do. We more or less have to give up trying to do things and learn to trust in just bare attention, in being aware of the way it is. And the way it is, is seen, we're looking at it in, in, its, uh, in, in the pattern of 
of what arises ceases. The, um, the conditioned realm that we're most affected by, most aware of, most deluded by, the, the conditioned realm, the sense realm, the material world, the emotional realm, the psychic realm, the, the, uh, the feeling realm, that which we see, uh, hear, smell, taste, touch, uh, the ability to think and remember, all of this is to us something that has, uh, is, we have been very attached, very identified, uh, aligned with, we believe in it. We've, we maybe never questioned it uh, as being anything but uh, that some kind of, of reality, the real world, that, that, we, that we have to, that we tend to regard in a very personal way. And yet, you always realize that intuitively, there's also that side of an individual human being that intuitively senses that this is not reality. This is, this is what we're used to. This is uh, what we've become accustomed to, that maybe the fantasy world of our own mind, maybe all the delusions and prejudices and fears and, and emotional reactions, we, we we, we tend to uh, easily be influenced and, and uh, threatened or involved with. But there's uh, something else that recognizes it as, as not being real. And so in meditation where we're using the way of mindfulness, or this attentiveness, this awareness, the watching, listening, and reflecting on the pattern of impermanence, what arises ceases. And so this we began to, to notice, not just uh, in, 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 in a coarse way, but in an increasingly more refined way, of just the, the movement, the, the fluctuations, the, the, uh, the kind of emotional feeling or the mood of the mind. We begin to see it and, and recognize it in, in its characteristic of impermanence. Now this takes a lot of uh, determination to stay with something till you, uh, and to, to bear with the, the doubt or the uncertainty that you might feel about it. Because the thinking mind, if you think about what you're doing, you end up feeling very uncertain and doubtful. Because remember, your thinking mind, your, the, the, the habitual tendency is, will inevitably take you to uncertainty and doubt. Now why is that? Why, when we think about, when we think too much, we end up feeling despair or doubt? If you notice in, in your own life, if, you, if you're trying to think about something too much, it, it, you, you feel in the, in the long, uh, usually, this sense of despair, frustration, and doubt. And the Buddha made this very clear, that, that whatever you do out of ignorance, out of not understanding things properly, not seeing, and in terms of, in Buddhist terms, not seeing into the, the th not realizing, 
not having realized the Four Noble Truths, then whatever we do uh, will take us to some form of suffering or sense of discontentment, feeling of, of despair or doubt. Now this statement is something for you to contemplate, not to believe. We do have the ability to, to, uh, to affirm life in a positive way uh, and kind of, uh, and that's, that's, that's a, a way of concentration, concentrating the mind on positive images, which uh, does give us a, uh, a momentary sense of confidence and maybe a, a kind of emotional high, because uh, just a continuous, steady affirmation of the power of positive thinking, all of this is, uh, does, uh, is one way of developing the mind, which concentrates it. And of course, when you fill your consciousness with positiveness, where, the, where the, that which is positive is being uh, affirmed over and over again, and being reinforced, then that, that is a kind of happiness that we, we have as a result of that. But it also can easily be disrupted because we have to keep affirming it to keep it going. And because, the, because we haven't realized or haven't been using wisdom, maybe we've been just developing a, a lot of uh, continuous affirmation. And you can see that in, in people in uh, kind of like with the born-again Christians, uh, people that believe very strongly in, in, uh, in what they're teaching, what they're preaching. And uh, they have a, a kind of radiant quality of, about them where their eyes are kind of glowing and they, they have a, a, a very convincing, uh, sometimes startling uh, ability to, to convince us or to make us pay attention to what they're saying because they truly believe what they're thinking and, they, and, 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 it's a, and it's a continuous affirmation of what they think, what they believe in. I remember meeting uh, some born-again Christians uh, which was uh, years ago in Cambridge and the man was, uh, he was absolutely aglow. He looked this kind of bright eyes, a kind of radiant look. But, but his affirmation was also making him a bit stupid because he couldn't, he only saw me as non-Christian. He could only see me in my robes as, as a non-Christian and that I wasn't, I wouldn't be saved, and therefore he wa he he felt he wanted to save me. And when I wasn't particularly interested in being saved by him, he got a bit nasty. <laughs> and then the then the radiance suddenly collapsed. <laughs> uh, it was like one of those smiles, you know, you can keep it going through kind of a willful determination, but suddenly it drops when, when, when something goes against you and you, you, you suddenly your face collapses into a, into a frown. <coughs> now the, the Buddhist 
emphasis on mindfulness, on sati, and the using and development of wisdom is to contemplate, use the ability to reflect upon the way things are. Because the human mind, we have this marvelous ability to, to look at things objectively. Uh, we have an objectivity that uh, sometimes we, we aren't really aware of, uh, fully aware of, and, and, and are maybe not really informed of the significance of this. Now, in the Buddhist world, it's generally acknowledged that, that being born as a, as a human being is a very fortunate thing because the human situation is one that we, we have this reflective ability. We can contemplate. We can question our own existence. We can observe uh, our own feelings and emotions. We can... Uh, we can study, we can uh, watch, we can investigate and examine the conditions of, of our body. We can, we can contemplate the nature of our own body or our own feelings, emotions. And this means we, we can acknowledge that they exist. For example, if you feel anger, say somebody says something uh, makes you very angry, you can acknowledge it. You can say, there's anger now. There's ang I feel angry. You can, you can, and if you're willing, you can go further than that. You can begin to contemplate, what does anger feel like in the body? What is it? Is it permanent? Is it really mine? You can, you can cont reflect on it and question about what this anger really is. You can analyze, how did it start? Why do I feel angry? When somebody just said a word to me, called me a dirty name. Why do I feel so angry over what somebody said? And you can contemplate, reflect upon, and, and observe this condition. That is, very, that is a very strong emotion, if you're willing to. And if we don't, then we tend to go to the, uh, to the extremes of, of following it, just acting on it, believing it totally, being totally absorbed into anger, and becoming somebody who's really angry, or the other extreme of just suppressing it, rejecting it, trying to stomp it out. Now those are the extremes that the Buddha pointed to as the way not to, the, as the way to experience suffering, is following these two extremes. The, the one extreme of indulgence, of being totally caught up into, into one, or the opposite reaction of suppression, rejection. And then the middle way that the Buddha talks about is this reflective acceptance, observation, putting it in a context of the way it is. Because no matter how unpleasant or exciting or strong it might be, one thing you will recognize if you, if you observe it for very long is that it's not permanent. You can't... You can't if you if you determine to to make your anger permanent, see how long you can stay angry. After a while, you get tired of it. It's, it's very hard work to stay angry. I mean, if you if you're really determined to stay angry in, in a conscious way, sometimes we 
we forget it, but then we, we haven't really observed. We just get angry every time we think uh, so-and-so called me a dirty name, and I'm angry, how dare they? And then, they, then you forget about it. But try to sustain that. See how long you can really be angry, and then you find out that uh, it's, it's, it's like being a born-again Christian. You can only stay angry by uh, continuously affirming your anger, and after a while it, it, it kind of drops away, and then and then you have to start over again. But if you, and, th and in this way, you begin to see the, the ending of anger, is the impermanence of anger. Then what arises in your mind, what comes into your consciousness, whatever you're feeling, good or bad, or neutral, if it arises, it ceases. And so you're, you're contemplating the way it is. You're not, you notice it's not a judgment, it's not saying it's good or bad, or how it should be. You're just noticing, making a, a very determined effort to notice the way it really is. Now those are the, the kind of passions of the, let's say, anger is, is, is a very strong emotion, or, or greed, or lust, and jealousy, and fear, these kind of, of uh, strong passions. But a lot of our life isn't really caught up into, into these strong, more, more extreme passions uh, of the heart, but uh, there's a lot of our life that's just totally unrecognized and unadmitted. And that it, it, we tend to get dull and sleepy and restless and uncertain and insecure and, and uh, just perfunctory in the way we live. Just creatures of habit. It's easy to just just follow the habits we've acquired and just run around uh, getting ca caught up in just doing the things we're used to uh, so that then our life may not have, you know, at moments have experiences of, of great anger and hatred and, and great greed or lust or great jealousy, but most of our life is not to that extreme. It's more on the level of of kind of delusory uh, befuddlement, just getting by. But we can also observe this. We can see this in an objective way and see that the, the confusion, the doubt, the insecurity, the restlessness, uh, the the dullness of mind, we begin to observe as, recognize it if it's present, and, and by admitting its presence, we sustain, we, we accept it for what it is, because we're, we're, we're just noting the way it is. We're not, we're not passing any judgments about how it should be. It's just like this. And if we accept the way something is, then we recognize its impermanence because you can't sustain it. It won't stay. Not permanent. And so more and more you're developing the wisdom around the cessation of the conditions that you're experiencing in your consciousness. In the, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha was pointing to this pattern, the realizing, the they pointing to the, uh, the, the first noble truth of suffering, of dukkha, 
the second of its arising, causes of arising, and the insight into letting go of the causes, which means as when we bring attention and awareness to something, we're letting go of it. Because we're to see it in that objective way, we have to let go of it, which doesn't mean we, we get rid of it. It means we, 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 let, we lose our grip on it. We let, we let go of our blind attachment to things so we can see them in the, in the right way. And then, of course, we realize that, that when they cease, they're, we, we recognize that they're impermanent. They're, they're what was there, what was bothering you a few minutes ago, suddenly is not there anymore like this. It's the, the mind, the, the conscious experience without anger or without greed or without delusion. <coughs> Contemplate your own, I mean, the way you perceive yourself and the universe. Because we have, uh, we've developed a very strong sense of our, of ourself as a, as a kind of very important thing. The sense of our self-importance. And, uh, and in, the, in modern uh, society, this self-importance has become very individualistic, very isolated. Uh, we we we're so convinced of our of our own self identity that it's increasingly more difficult to relate to anyone else because we we give so much significance to our separateness to our individuality that you you wonder why it's so difficult to to stay married or to you know why you know like the family relationships or the old kind of group relationships and identities seem to be on the wane. And what seems to be significant now in, say, modern Western world anyway, is an emphasis on our individuality and our separateness. So the self has been taken to an extreme. Well, this is how I see it anyway in the Western world. The sense of oneself is we're, we've become extreme, extremists self-centered extremists. Now this uh, is, has its advantages in the fact that we, we don't feel bound by all the kind of obligations that, say, other societies might feel, like uh, are bound to, to our families or our nation or our tribe. These don't seem very significant. I'm just speaking for myself, anyway. That uh, they say I'm the only son in the family. I've got a sister, and I don't think my parents ever said you've got to get married and have have children to keep the family name. I don't think that ever even occurred to my parents, much less to me. And yet, in in other societies, that would be if you were the the eldest son or the only son, your, your duty to the family would be to get married so you could, so the family name would be carried on. The sense of duty to the family name. And, and I have absolutely no desire to keep my family name 
going on for another generation. Nor did my parents seem to think it very important. Uh, I was brought up to be uh, an individual with rights, freedom, do what you want, uh, and uh, take care of yourself, be independent, uh, don't depend on anybody, be self-sufficient. These were the, the goals, the ideals, say, of, at least that I was instilled with. And they have certain advantage, I'm not on ungrateful or complaining about it, because they, they did give me a lot of freedom, a lot of choice to, to just do what I want. That's why we could easily become a Buddhist monk. Because even though my parents weren't particularly overjoyed about it, they knew they didn't have any right to say no. And, uh, and so they, they didn't. <laughs> and in the end, they kind of went along with it. <laughs> So the, the kind of individual rights and freedom, I'm certainly, I feel very grateful for that. But the, the dark side of it was uh, a very strong sense of isolation and loneliness. Because if you're self-sufficient, independent and individual, you get incredibly lonely. And uh, <laughs> Because those, you don't know how to, to depend on somebody else or how to include others in your mind, in your heart. You're, you've already uh, you made your determination to be free from the clawing uh, attachments of, on an emotional level or the duties and uh, responsibilities that might be necessary to accept if you're, if you're involved with with others, with other people or other groups. So there's this sense of freedom uh, and ability to, to do what you want, come and go, but also the unpleasant side of alienation, isolation, loneliness, and inability to really include others in, in your in your heart. So it was very difficult to sustain any relationship with another person because, because of that. You just had no, no way of, of doing that. Uh, except sometimes getting just emotionally kind of dependent on somebody was about the best you could do. And then you had to kind of revert back to kind of childish immaturity to get away with that. So the self is, can be reflected upon and contemplated. And this is, this is also an integral part of the Buddhist teaching, was the, the uh, contemplation of the self. Now, the Buddha taught anatta, or non-self, not as a, as a dogmatic position that we take or assume, but as a skillful means to, to examine the, the sense of ourselves, the conditioned sense of I am this personality, this body, this, this uh, being here, this is me. All the assumptions we make about ourselves. Notice how much you assume about yourself. That if you have a certain 
thought or a certain tendency that you are that kind of continuously. But if you do feel jealous sometimes, then it's easy to assume I'm a jealous person. There's a kind of ongoing assumption that, that jealousy is me, uh, even when there's no jealousy, I'm still a jealous person, or I'm a, I'm a frightened person. I have a lot of fear, and uh, I'm frightened all the time. Even though when you're not frightened, you don't, you never think, I'm, 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 an, I'm, I'm a not frightened person. It's easy for us to assume that we are basically all the time a frightened person. Because the, these perceptions we hold to and cling to, and, and we don't question, we don't notice how what's really operating, how it, what's really taking place, we're, we're caught in the in making these judgments, making and having these assumptions that that I am this uh, as as an ongoing thing. Even the gender of the body, that we we think I am a I am a man, a male. All the time. That's what we assume. Or if you're a woman, then you you don't think that. I don't know, some women might, I don't know. <laughs> but that's an assumption we make, isn't it? I was, when I started becoming aware of, of the gender of the body, they said, you're a boy. And, and, uh, and so one, that was the basis of what boys are like, and, and, that, uh, and that one developed a whole way of thinking and a whole attitude and assumption based around the, the gender of the human body. And that is, uh, and of course that is now being questioned in say with modern life, the feminist movement and the, the man's movement and all the rest of it is, is an attempt to question maybe these, these kind of attitudes and biases and assumptions that we have that we've never really we just assumed we're reality, because that's the way it seems. It seems like I've been a man or a male all my life. From the time I was born, even when I was in the womb, I must have, when, when, the, when the gender started appearing, I, was, I started there and up to this present moment. But if you really examine the mind, you begin to see that the perception of being a man or woman is something that comes and goes in the mind. And you're, you're noting that, that, it's, uh, that, it, that what arises sees that you don't think, I mean, none of, none of us are, think of ourselves in a continuous way about being male or female. We just assume we are that. It's an ongoing thing. But in investigation, in terms of Dhamma, then we begin to see it, the perception arises and ceases in the mind. So you begin to change your attitude rather than assuming that you're a permanent man or woman, you begin to see that sometimes that, that's, uh, that's the kind of feeling or the attitude or the perception that, that you have in the moment, but it also is impermanent. And it's, and it's not one's true self. One is not truly a man or woman. And apply that, and that seems that that's taking it to uh, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, to the level of, of just the body that we have and the identity with it. But 
take that also to all the other assumptions you make about being English is as or being Scottish or being European or being working class or middle class or being Buddhists or Christians or whatever. The, uh, it's, this isn't a denial or a refutation of it, but it's a noticing of what, what's really, what it really is in terms of experience. And you begin to, to, to change your, your attitude about it. That sometimes when, it, when, it, when it's necessary, you become English. If you happen, if that's an identity that, that that's part of your uh, uh, worldview, when you uh, when you say uh, when you uh, these English people have told me they don't feel so English when they're in England, but when they go to America, they feel more English. <laughs> because everybody's English, and it doesn't doesn't stand out, but in America it does. The same with being American. It's, being American here is is uh, is more. You feel you, you begin to see what American, what being American is when it's contrasted with with say something like England or Britain. But these are but these are assumptions too that that because I was born in America that I'm an American kind of ongoing, whether when I'm asleep, when I'm awake, when I'm in England, when I'm a Buddhist monk, or when I'm sick or crazy or having a nervous breakdown, or whatever, I'm an American all the time. <laughs> But on close investigation, what is the real truth behind it is that, that that perception does arise in certain moments and it ceases. So in this way, you're, you're developing that, that Buddha wisdom, or the ability to see things as they are. And this helps you to break down the, the way you assume, make assumptions, or the prejudices the biases that you've acquired in your life, just the, the conditioning of your mind. You're getting, you're transcending the conditioning of your mind. You're no longer just helplessly bound to the way you've been conditioned by life. Now what this does is it it allows you to, to let go or to free your, yourself from the ignorance that's caused through attachment to these things, the assumptions and the, the, the habitual tendencies that you've acquired in your life, to begin to realize the true nature of the mind, which is pure, which is non-personal. And which is peaceful. It's not confused. It's not dull. It's not angry. It's not, it's not a man or woman. It's not British or American. It's not uh, 
good or bad or right or wrong or whatever. It is it is it's an ineffable realization of truth, which can only take place through relinquishment, through letting go of uh, uh, and relaxing your attachments to the conditioned realm and to trust in being aware. Well, it sounds very simple, doesn't it? All you have to do is relax and be aware. I've got to relax and be aware. <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> Remember reading Krishnamurti years ago, and, and Krishnamurti used to say, don't practice meditation, don't get into those techniques or anything. Just go out and look at the flowers and listen to the birds. That sounds very nice. Birds sounds, you know... Who wants to go on a meditation retreat, sit cross-legged and, and all that? If all you have to do is go out in the field, look at the flowers and listen to the birds. So I went outside, looked at the flowers, listened to the birds. I couldn't stand it. Nothing wrong with the flowers or the birds, <laughs> but the mind was, was I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm supposed to be getting something out of this, you know. He says, Krishnamurti said, just relax, and relax, and listen to the birds, and listening to the birds. So what? <laughs> it's more, you know, it's, it's, it's a poetic to think of listening to the birds, but try listening to the birds for a long time. Or try looking at, a, at the most beautiful flower and see how long you can sustain your attention on its beauty. <laughs> we, we, we kind of look at it and say, oh, there, isn't that lovely? And then we go on to the next thing. But stay with it, you know. I, thought, I did this experiment years ago in Thailand. I thought, well, say, like, flowers are very beautiful. Color, form, fragrance. So that's, that's really, you know, superlative beauty. So why not just, that's enough. All you have to do is look at this flower and you'll, you'll, you will abide with the beautiful. So I did, and the mind was wandering all over the place. It's hard to sustain it on the flower, even though the flower was very beautiful. So even the beautiful, we can't truly appreciate because we're so, we, we, we tend to just pass it over. We tend to stimu get stimulated by beauty, titillated by beauty, excited by beauty, but we don't know how to, we, we, we've not been trained how to, to realize beauty. So beauty becomes just some kind of temptation for us, something that, that excites us or stimulates us or with something we, we become attached to, the idea of, of having beautiful things around us. But do you really understand beauty, ask yourself? Do you really appreciate it you know, from, the pure, from the pure mind rather than from the tendency to attach, to identify, to, to clutch at it, or to, to just... Or we can we, we become very critical. We get as we become more kind of aesthetic as the aesthetes of the world, 
develop such high standards, such refined sense of beauty that they get very uh, kind of snobbish about it all. It has to be beauty has to be on, on a very refined level, and then then that which isn't doesn't meet that standard, one just feels contempt and, and averse to. You become one of these kind of dilettantes, cultural snobs, where you you look down your nose at the the ordinary plebeians of life because you you've you've attached to a, maybe a high standard of beauty or a certain kind of beauty but you're still not you still there's still a self there's still uh, attachment so that beauty yeah, that that attachment itself always creates the suffering even when you get even when you can maybe control and and uh, influence the world around you to to move toward this aesthetic ideal, even if you should succeed in getting it, you still find you are suffering in it because of the attachment, the, the blind attachment, the ignorant attachment to it. So that's why the Buddhists uh, encourage us to look at our own bodies, to be mindful of the body. Because the body is hard to hold it and to regard it as being beautiful for very long. It's uh, we tend like vanity itself. We tend to even even the most beautiful people tend to be very critical of themselves uh, because uh, they can always because vanity is is a kind of harsh judgment, isn't it? To try to 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 see yourself always as some kind of very beautiful, attractive man or woman means that that anything goes slightly off and you, you're very disturbed by it, you're critical. You don't like the body when it's sick or when it starts getting old or getting wrinkles or when it, when it starts having arthritis or when, it, uh, you, know, when, it, when you have indigestion or whatever, then you, you feel only averse and... And, uh, and you feel rejection of it. So the body, the human body, we can see as, we have ideals of it as beautiful. But for our own body, we, 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 we tend to either not notice it, not really pay attention to it. We tend to have very strong views about it, about what it should be, or what we don't like about it, what's wrong with it. We can dwell on the nature of our body as being uh, not attractive or the nose is too big or the eyes are too small or the lips are too thick or the hair is too thin or the chin is too strong or whatever. And we can make ourselves totally miserable about the way the body is. But when we contemplate the body and just accepting it for what it is. We're not trying to convince ourselves that it's beautiful or that it's marvelous. We're just willing to, to accept it the way it is, even when it's not feeling very good. And this you can see in your own experience of, say, physical pain and meditation. Because one thing that beginning meditators 
realize very quickly that sitting still uh, for five minutes is not easy. And one starts feeling a lot of uh, physical pain, discomfort, itching, all kinds of, of sensations, that, that unpleasant sensations. And uh, we're asked not to, to try to move or to scratch or do anything about them, but to let them be, to, to admit them into our consciousness and not try to, to change them, but just uh, accept them. And that, you can see, brings up, will bring up the emotional stress because we... Maybe our whole life we've, has been an attempt to avoid pain or discomfort, and we feel we feel we you know that that we're going to that we can't stand it, we can't bear this pain. But as we relax into it, when we begin to accept it, acknowledge it, the just the the, the maybe uncomfortable sensations in the body or pain. We begin to realize that that uh, that is something that it is what it is, and, and that we can and we can accept it in, as a conscious experience. And we and as we stop resisting, stop fighting, stop resenting this, just the relaxation oftentimes helps to to where the pain will will go. But we. Uh, when we begin to relax and accept life, then the suffering can be resolved. Now, some people have chronic pain, and I've noticed that that uh, they, those that meditate learn how to to accept, say, physical discomfort and not be averse to it. And that's 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 the, what we can learn because oftentimes we, in our lives we have to learn. Uh, many people have accidents or problems with with uh, a, a very with illnesses or things that cannot be cured or cannot we cannot get rid of it. And so, what can we do about it? One thing is to accept it, and we we begin to realize. That we can accept the un, the ugly, the unpleasant, the painful uh, in our consciousness, and not develop aversion to it. And this is uh, this is you're getting to an understanding of the way things are. That say the reactive mind is when something's painful or ugly or unpleasant is to get averse to it and try to get rid of it. But as we're mindful of it, we we're, rec we're, we're trusting in being with the, the flow of life as it is, without trying to influence it or change it or direct it uh, to, to follow our, to, to, with our desires, but to trust in just that bare awareness and to note and to accept and to allow things to be what they are. And then we recognize their presence and their absence. Because this conditioned realm is, is a very powerful experience. As you all know, having a physical body is a lifetime of discomfort. 
from the time you're born, babies aren't born. Oh, they joyfully, they know goody, goody, here I am again in a human body. Usually they come out crying, I think, screaming. <laughs> and they, here I am again in another one of these. <laughs> So the body is to be contemplated and to be to be noticed. Like uh, this, I found just from my own kind of feelings about my own reflections on the on this body is that the body actually, this human body, you realize real, uh, more and more is not oneself at all. And because of that, as you accept it. Uh, and are not critical or ignoring it, is you just accept it as its right to exist for what it is. And you're not uh, comparing it with somebody else and you're not, uh, I and you're not ignoring it and, and refusing to, to notice it. When you actually notice it and accept it, the body has a, a sense, it feels, begins to feel much better. I've noticed this. This this body here, it begins to it needs to be noticed, and accepted. I was reading about somebody who's writing about flowers the other day, and they said, "Flowers love to be admired." And I used to think that was all rubbish, you know. But now I begin to see that that's probably true. Flowers, why are they so beautiful? Because they want to be noticed. And they like to be told they're beautiful. Is there anything wrong with that? <laughs> so then, also the human body—it's uh, an—it's a—it's a sensitive being in its own right. So when we when we regard it in a selfish or vain way, then we're not we're not accepting it for what it is. We're we're criticizing it because it's not what we would like. Or we, or we, we can be so caught up with ideas that we don't. We have a way of just suppressing the body and ignoring its needs until it starts getting sick or breaking down. You can see so much. Uh, so people oftentimes have no, ex you know, just totally reject their their bodies till suddenly they find their bodies uh, all in very kind of in a lot of pain and a lot of illness. And to me, that's the body saying, you know, the body's revenge. It's saying, you've, you've ignored me all these years. This is the result. <laughs> I just waste away and get sick and feel horrible. So in, in reflection on the body, it isn't, it isn't uh, taking it personally or, or making anything of it, but just recognizing it and appreciating it as a vehicle that we have in this lifetime to study and learn from. And it has its own pleasurable, uh, its, its pleasure, its goodness, and it also has its misery. But we accept both. It's, it's not a matter of choosing. I, want, I only like you when you're feeling good and you're young and attractive. 
And when you get old and sick, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> it's uh, it's the it's the acceptance of both. Of both, it's it's uh, beauty, it's goodness, it's pleasure, and it's pain, and it's aging, it's illness, it's weaknesses. So this is groundiness. This this body brings us down to to the earth level. We we have to come out of our heads, our ideals, our our fantasy world, to to learn to just be and accept and be patient with the way one's own body might feel now, the way it is. The body, the feelings, the sensitive state we're in, isn't it? We are. This is a total experience of sensitivity for your lifetime. And it's frightening, isn't it, to be so sensitive and vulnerable all the time when you're taking it personally. You know how hurt, how vulnerable, how easily damaged, damageable you are. And as on taking it on a personal level, it brings us a lot of fear and anxiety because we, 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 we know that we're where we can be hurt, physically abused, or brutalized, or anything, just earthquake, fires, whatever. We're, in the, we're always in, the, in that state of possible uh, disaster in regards to the physical body. Because it is a feeling, sensitive form. So we begin to accept the sensitivity of it by acknowledging it, by noticing what it is, not judging it, but just this is the way it is. But the eyes are sense organs, aren't they? They, 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 so they see whatever comes in front of them. They see the beauty and the ugliness, or the ears and the nose, the tongue, the body itself, the mind. Isn't it? we? We have thoughts that are superlative, wonderful thoughts, and we have. Thoughts that can be abysmal, dreadful, horrible, nasty, demonic thoughts. But in the attitude of a meditator, then, it's to note, to be aware of these in the in the way in in the in the form that they actually exist as impermanent and as non-self. Because when you investigate them for what they really are, you you realize it's, it's just the, 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 the state of change that's taking place. And it's not a, a kind of permanent uh, person that you're, you begin to uh, make assumptions about. What remains is the pure knowing and the connection to that knowing within this individual form. And the, and the release, the relief from knowing the truth from realizing the truth, in which you no longer are caught in just the, 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 the habitual conditioning of the mind, just a helpless victim of, of what's happened to you so far, in which you, you can realize there's nothing to be frightened of. Death is no more a problem. doesn't mean that your body doesn't die, but it means you know your body it will die, and it's okay, because that's what it's supposed to do. It's not yours anyway. <laughs> so
So this is uh, kind of the miracle of meditation, of using this human condition as a way of studying and investigating the truth of the way it is. And this is the, the great gift we have, the great opportunity as human beings. So I want to offer this for your reflection for this afternoon. And we can have a break now, 15 minutes, in which you can have some tea, and then we will uh, resume this, and we'll have a discussion. Yeah, that's the ultimate question. <laughs> because uh, that's why you, you reflect on the, the way it is, because uh, just consider that you're, you're, in a, you're in a separate form. As a, you're born into a, into a human form. So you're actually operating from, from, a, from, from a position uh, as a as an individual entity, and and so that's the that's what consciousness is. You know, you're you're conscious now because you're uh, because you're separate, and uh, that separation is uh, can be. T I mean, we tend to take it personally, and uh, and create illusions about it. But uh, uh, when we reflect upon it, then we we we're realizing the way it is, which is getting beyond the personal expressions or the the uh, conditioned uh, attitudes about it to pure awareness, where uh, then you're then like you're you're then contacting or you're in touch with the pure mind rather than with the conditioning of the mind, which and the pure mind is as universal, not personal. Like that, when we when we realize the pure mind, realize the empty mind. It's called emptiness. Uh, in Buddhism, they use different words: as shunyata, emptiness, or anatta, non-self. Uh, uh, it implies, you know, what what this is not like a um, a soulless. Uh, void, uh, kind of sterile vacuum of nothingness. It's 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 what you realize when there's not attachment, which is there's still you know you but there's awareness. There's there's a pure awareness, which is non-personal. It's not conditioned by culture, by thoughts, by language, by memory. And that that is then. When we when we realize that, then the personal is in a perspective, and, and we're not going to make problems about. I mean, we know how to resolve. We can solve the problems we make on personal level, or you know, on the on the individual plane. When we know this, when we don't know this, then we tend to get into the old wars and prejudices, and them and us, and the enemy, and me and you, and 
the Serbs and the Croats and the whole lot that arises from from basic ignorance. If in 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 the realization of the pure mind, then or the deathless, it's deathless. It's not like you're the death the deathbound conditions. Your body's deathbound, and the conditions of your mind. They come and go. You know, they they're not permanent things. They're not deathless. So so that the the aim say for a human human meditation is because you don't don't wait for your body to die. What we do is we die before we die. By letting the by recognizing the nature of the condition of the mind, we let go of that to realize the deathless. That's why there's nothing to fear, because Fear, it comes out of identifying with this sensitive state and it makes us frightened. And, and identifying with your body because you know it's going to die and you, and you don't know what death is and, it, uh, and it's frightening. You don't, if you don't know what it is, it could be, you know, it can, it can be terrifying for you. But when you die before you die, which means you, you contemplate how things cease, then you realize that, 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 that actually things come and go and change. And, but it's not, it's not like it used to be where you were saying, oh, I'm going to die and, and, <laughs> and I'm frightened because life can be so painful and I can be hurt and I can be, uh, you know, the things I love can be taken away from me and, it, and, I, and I'm terrified of it and all the possibilities of of humiliation and and pain and that, uh, because uh, if you're taking it on that level, then then we have a lot to be frightened of. But when we see it in terms of what it really is, then we realize there's nothing to fear. Because even in the even in the uh, uh, misfortunes of the conditioned realm, we can bear those. Well, we can we can bear all kinds of things if we when we need to, and sometimes we we think we're cowardly because sitting in a nice comfortable room, you know, thinking, oh, if I you know I couldn't bear it if, if I ever had a terminal illness, I couldn't take it, and then but when we when when people get them, they can bear them, and or you know they lose them. If I'd lost my money, I wouldn't I would just want to kill myself, but. You know, if, if, you're, if you're using any wisdom in your life, you lose your money, it's okay. You can keep going. <laughs> it's not all that important. But, but if you're, you know, you've, well, you're attached to somebody, and if I lose my loved one, uh, there'll be no purpose left, and life will be a, a dreary desert and depressing state. And, you know, we all lose our loved ones, and, and we all experience that, and uh, and we, you know, we learn from it. We can bear those things. The, the uh, I mean, somebody yesterday, I was talking to a man who whose father died recently, and he he's suffering a lot of grief because of his of, of the loss of his father. And so I was telling him, I said, but this is, this is, this is life, you know, life is like this. We, we all have to experience loss of the loved. It's a part of every human experience. It's a part of what human beings learn from. It's not like bad or unfair. 
And uh, when we look at it like that, then uh, of course we uh, we can bear these things. We can see there's always an opportunity to to learn and, and rise up. Because especially in the the, the the tragedies or the losses of life, these are you know something in us has to rise up to it. Otherwise, we just sink. And uh, and uh, so that sometimes losing your money or or uh, having a terminal illness or loss of a loved one forces us to to rise up to meet life in a different way than we do when when we have these things and when we 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 can just kind of sink into a into maybe a level of just getting by in life. Now here in, in Britain, just notice how easy it is to just get by. And uh, the society doesn't demand much from its people. It, it uh, so you can you can live in this country and just get by. <laughs> and, and and because of that, you know you you're not getting any kind of great uh, great gains out of it. <laughs> uh, but also we can see that that. Um, I mean, I appreciate that. I mean, I I like living here because it's a very nice country to live in. But but also, it doesn't mean that we have to sink into it. But we can we you know now say we haven't because the the basic things are quite secure and and you can count on you know a, a fairly decent standard of living by living in this country. But you so you don't have to kind of you don't have those kind of worries or those kind of uh, problems. So you do have opportunities to, you don't have to spend your life just kind of gleaning in, in, the, in the forest looking for a leaf that you can eat, like not like they do in the Sudan right now, southern Sudan. You see pictures of these Sudanese in the southern Sudan, you know, living skeletons. They, they can't develop meditation very well, because they they're just out to get a you know find anything they can to eat. But here we we don't have that problem. But we can sink into a, in a in a kind of spiritual starvation because we can we can get by in life to very easily. This is why we want to encourage this kind of rising up. And like meditation, if you go on a meditation retreat, you have to rise up to it. It's something you you know it's. You have to kind of something you has to come up a bit. You can't just, you know, it's 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 a, it's a situation you put yourself into voluntarily. It's not forced on you, so you kind of put yourself into it, and then during that time, something you has to rise up to it. And it's it's the, the and that many people begin to discover there are you know that in themselves that they can do that. Maybe they didn't know that before. They were just, you know, these preconceptions and assumptions about themselves that get stuck in a rut of maybe self-pity or self-disparagement. And then when put to a test, they sometimes realize they can rise up. And, uh, and, and they begin to, you know, that's good for them to realize they can do it. Because one can just ride along in a level of mediocrity. 
it's that which attracts. <laughs> or you can, I mean, beauty is a word that you can, and that, you know, you can use in different ways. Like, like if you look at beautiful objects, you can, one can look at, like, and, and beauty as temptation, because it attracts you. You know, the force of, say, beautiful objects, they, they're beautiful because they have an attractive force. When you look at them, you, you want to go to them, you want them. But also, as you reflect on beauty more and more, then you let go of the, just uh, that, that kind of uh, greedy or lustful reaction to beauty. You, you can, because that is, that may be how you react to it, but, but as you understand the nature of beauty, then you begin to appreciate it or, or love the beautiful, not in the sense of wanting it uh, on, a, on a selfish plane, but with the love of the beautiful or the good or the true. Like in English, we use these words like the beautiful, the good, and the true. And these are quite meaningful words to us. And to love the good, or love the beautiful, or love truth, and this, this of course, is this is well, this is from a reflective place rather than from a personal greed. Because when it becomes personal and greedy, then we want the truth, so we 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 try to to hold on to what we think is true, and and in in the process we suffer, or we. We love the beautiful, so we want to we want to keep it and hold it and possess it. And in the process, we no longer we no longer see it. We no longer uh, appreciate the beautiful because we're so involved with our own greedy reaction to it. And so the but as you understand more and more, then you you let go of the of these uh, blind reactions to to things, and you then you. Say so your true nature is that pure love of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Then you can see beauty as something that that reminds you of, say, the ultimate reality, rather than something that's tempting you to to have lustful thoughts. Love it. <laughs> because, like, one can see, uh, uh, like, one can see feminine beauty. As I mean, like, I think the West, we have a, we have basically a pornographic outlook on, on women. And so we, we only see women in as, 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 like as temptresses or beauty queens, uh, things that you want uh, for lustful reasons. And, and of course, there's that side to it. But, uh, but also, one can, you know, as you let go of those kind of 
reactions, then you can see that the, the beauty of a woman is 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 is, is something that's pointing to ultimate truth rather than to a personal object <laughs> that's going to that uh, you feel lust for, and and I think like in the f feminist movement, a lot of these women's protests uh, because they they get fed up with just being <laughs> treated like like things that you that men just want to grab hold of and possess or use. Because basically, intuitively, there's this recognition of, of of beauty as pointing beyond just the the thing in itself, and you sometimes wonder, you know, like like uh, say, what what are flowers about? Because they're truly beautiful, and uh, they don't arouse lust. At least not in me. <laughs> <laughs> but they do attract you. You know, you, you look at them and you want to go and and uh, and, and kind of you know, you know you admire them. And sometimes, I mean, if you're heedless and you want to go and pick them or get hold of them and do something with them, but uh, say for a monk, you train yourself. You're not supposed to pick flowers because we're forbidden to pick flowers. So, so this, you know. If you've had those tendencies to want to go and pick them, you don't. And you learn how to just accept them and uh, and appreciate them uh, wherever they are. And, and you can see color for one thing, like the beautiful, beautiful of a beautiful color, or the uh, or the or form or fragrance. So then you can't. But what is this about? What where do these come from? What is the purpose? And you can. You can just have a very kind of utilitarian attitude. It's just the birds and the bees, you know. Sex, that's what it's all about. Those flowers are there just to attract, to, to keep the, the whole system going, the procreative system going. And one, one so this is why I say we have, tend to see things always from a very coarse uh, and, and almost pornographic uh, inclination and uh, or, t or t turn of mind where... Say, uh, like when you're offering flowers to to a shrine, you know why why are flowers an offering? Say a traditional offering to a Buddhist shrine because they are what is truly beautiful in nature, and uh, and you're offering something beautiful as a as a kind of from the heart where you're you're giving what is truly precious and truly beautiful to the shrine, not not just because they're you know they're you think, well, flowers don't cost very much and you can <laughs> give a cheap offering. <laughs> or, but, or you can see it like that. Or you can see that, that you're offering something, you're giving something that is that in itself is, is uh, superb. There's a way of, say, an expression of gratitude and devotion. And these kind of acts, ceremonial acts, are... Are, is the experience of joy, and uh, we we feel you know we feel joyful when we when we do things like that. It's coming from the purity of the mind, and the the um, it's interesting to just the symbolism of like the Buddhist uh, the Buddha form the 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 Buddha Rupa. Is uh, 
is, is a, an a perfected art form in itself. There's no way, there's no way you can prove on it. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's kind of reached its, its perfection long ago, long, many hundreds of years ago, or a thousand years ago. So, so I mean, it's, but it's the human form, isn't it? It's a, it looks like a human being, but it's, it's the human form in its state of awareness and compassion. And so the, the Buddha Rupa has this sense of serenity and peace and calm and acceptance. Uh, and and the, the, the posture of the body, the stillness of it. That's why living with, with Buddha Rupa is, is very pleasant because they, they, they in themselves affect your mind. They, they remind you of, of serenity and calm and peacefulness. Hmm? Yes, yes. Well, I remember when I first when I first went to Thailand years ago, and and you go in some of the temples in Bangkok, and you see rows of Buddha rupas, uh, one right after another. And and in those days, I didn't really appreciate them very much. And I, what do you want all these Buddha rupas here? One right, they all look the same. And the the Western mind would would be, <laughs> would, I mean, I was looking at it only from from you know a, a Western conditioned mind and just see it in, in a critical way, you know, whether I liked it or didn't like it or whatever. But in, uh, then as you contemplate them, because in a monastery you live with so many Buddha images that you, you start paying attention to them and you begin to, to see, begin to appreciate the, the stillness of the image. And if you notice like, like Western the way Westerners tend to create a sculpture is usually passionate. And in Paris, I remember having this insight in Paris years ago where walking in the public park, there were these kind of huge uh, sculptures of men and women, all in very, you know, either angry or warriors or, or arrogant or haughty. So many of the of the female statues are women looking very haughty and not very nice. And, and they <laughs> nasty side of women. <laughs> or just being, <laughs> being, uh, or being um, uh, just, uh, you know, uh, sexually tempting or whatever. But, uh, and, these, and some of them are quite brilliant in terms of aesthetics and art. But the effect on the mind is that they, 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 they aren't calming to the mind. They, they don't, they don't uh, you know, you see them and you can admire them in, in, in the, the craftsmanship and the aesthetic value that they do have. But in the, in the, the Buddha Rupa, you realize it's a very, has, has its ability to calm the human, the human mind. If you, if you contemplate the face of a Buddha, a face of a Buddha Rupa. Like this one here, it's a very beautiful face. Well, that's how sensitive we are, that we are affected by what impinges on us. We, it does influence our conscious experience.
Well, we we start usually with with uh, meditation on the breath. That's the, that was that's the kind of standard because you're. Um, but sometimes that is. Um, I mean, you, it varies according to what people people's needs are. It can be d different, but the breath is what you're doing is you're bringing attention to the body itself. Because to to be mindful of your breath, you have to pay attention to your.